The curfew tolls the knell of parting day. The lowing herd winds slowly o'er the lea. The plowman homeward plods his weary way and leaves the world to darkness and to me. The opening stanza from Thomas Gray's poem, Elegy Written in a Country Churchyard. Later on, Gray writes, The paths of glory lead but to the grave. Humphrey Cobb was a veteran of World War I when, in 1935, he took that phrase from Gray's poem and used it as the title for a novel he had written, partly based on his experiences in the trenches. Often mistakenly identified as Canadian, Cobb was actually born in Siena to American parents in 1899. He was sent to boarding school in England, and it wasn't until he was a teenager that the Cobb family returned to the United States. But young Humphrey did not settle there. In fact, he was expelled from school and he ran away, north to Montreal, where in 1916 he enlisted in the Canadian Army. He was all but 17. After the war ended, he stayed on in Europe for a number of years, trying various professions, including a marine merchant, before slowly but almost consciously drifting into writing. He had written propaganda for the Office of War Information, otherwise known as the US spy agency OSS and CIA. Then he joined the Young and Rubicam Advertising Agency in New York, and it was there that he wrote Paths of Glory. Hello there, soldier. Ready to kill more Germans? That is, everything all right, soldier? All right. Yes, sir, I'm all right. <laughs> Good fella. Are you married, soldier? Married? Me married? Yes, have you got a wife? A wife? Have I got sir, a wife? He's a bit shell-shocked. I beg your pardon, sergeant. There is no such thing as shell-shock. As a novel, it is not as widely read as other literary works set in the Great War and written by those who were there. Eric Maria remarks all quiet on the Western Front, Ford Maddox Ford's Parade's End and Ernest Hemingway's A Farewell to Arms, which is a pity because Cobb's work is as unique as each of the others, and just like the others, it forges its own path to write its own damning indictment of war. I loathe clichés such as ahead of its time and more relevant than ever, so let's just say that Cobb was not ahead of his time. No, it is we who are late in appreciating what he was saying. And sadly, the more we insist on staying stupid, the sadder Cobb's novel becomes. And so, it is hard not to apply his observations to pretty much any conflict currently raging about the globe. It sounds a contradiction, but the novel is incredibly angry, yet coolly distilled. And surely, it was Cobb's ability to remain clinical and detached that captured the imagination of a 14-year-old boy reading the book in New York City. That boy's name was Stanley Kubrick, and within 14 years, Kubrick was bringing the story to the screen. George, I'm responsible for the lives of 8,000 men. What is my ambition against that? What is my reputation in comparison to that? My men come first of all, George. And those men know it, too. I know that they do. You see, George, those men know that I would never let them down. That goes without saying. The life of one of those soldiers means more to me than all the stars and decorations and honors in France. So, you think this attack is absolutely beyond the ability of your men at this time? I didn't say that, George. The plot of Paths of Glory is pulled from an actual event that occurred in the region of Champagne in March 1915. Within the French 136th Regiment, there were four corporals who were ordered by their superiors to launch an assault on an anthill occupied by the German army. The manoeuvre was insanely ambitious, even foolhardy, if not suicidal. 
and when it failed, the corporals were pulled before a court's martial, found guilty of cowardice in the face of the enemy, and summarily executed. In the proclamation read out before they faced the firing squad, it was stated that their executions were to encourage other soldiers to fight harder. If it weren't so serious, it would be the stuff of a Monty Python sketch, because in reality, the four men were executed for no reason better than that they had failed to satisfy the vanity of their generals. Outsized ego had demanded an anthill be taken, so it wasn't a strategic military position, but rather a positioning of preening status amongst the officer class that demanded the soldiers be shot. I'm going to have ten men from each company in your regiment tried under penalty of death for cowardice. Penalty of death? For cowardice! They've skimmed milk in their veins instead of blood. Well, that's the reddest milk I've ever seen. My trenches are soaked. That's just about enough out of you, well, I'm not going to mince words and stand Colonel out. Colonel Dax, if you continue of... in this manner, I shall have to place you under arrest. So, hopefully, we can see that this story is not merely anti-war. It strikes at the very heart of that great modern construct, the institution. That monolith within and behind which feeble and indeed great minds can hide and claim that things must be done in order for progress to be made. Here is David Simon, the creator of the HBO TV series The Wire. Paths of Glory, both the book and the movie, had a huge influence on Simon's work. Any institution that we create uh, as a society, uh, from in this instance from a military to a school system to a um, police department to a Department of Homeland Security to a Department of Agriculture, whatever we create to service to serve and be served uh, as part of the society has the capacity to betray its own purpose and to betray betray the people who work for it and who the institution is supposed to work on behalf of. That is almost a certitude of modern life. I've said it before, but I think it bears repeating that anyone who claims Stanley Kubrick was a cold director, that he was a cynic, a pessimist, a misanthrope, are so wide of the mark they are hardly worth listening to. Stanley Kubrick was a humanist, and like all great humanists, he understood that institutions such as government, church, military and the courts are not irrational, uncaring, unthinking monoliths. No, they are ferocious, functioning organisms created by us as a collective so that we as individuals don't have to think. And that conflict lies at the very heart of Paths of Glory. Colonel Dax, played with brilliant indignation by Kirk Douglas, is the worst sort of officer and the best sort of man. He has a conscience and is unswayed by petty squabbles such as promotion and vanity. He wants to win the war, of course, but he doesn't want to do so by losing his men and his humanity. And because Dax has such principles, he takes it upon himself to defend the men accused of cowardice against the very institution that despises the individual. Colonel Dax... You're a disappointment to me. You have spoiled the keenness of your mind by wallowing in sentimentality. You really did want to save those men. And you were not angling for Miro's command. You're an idealist. And I pity you, as I would the village idiot. We're fighting a war, Dax, a war that we've got to win. Those men didn't fight, so they were shot. You bring charges against General Miro, so I insist that he answer them. Wherein have I done wrong? And in so doing... What Kubrick did was devise a scheme that visualised the opposing positions. Watch carefully and you will see many early examples of Kubrick's beautifully framed and brilliantly lensed tracking shots. You see them in the trenches, you see them as the regiment launches its assault, you see them in the court's martial, and you see them at the execution. The lines showing men being driven by minds that don't think. 
no matter which way the men move, they are going to be outmaneuvered. And if that sounds as if I'm making it out to be a game, well, look carefully at the floor in the courtroom and you will see that it resembles a chessboard. Ah, you might say, there is proof that Kubrick was a cynic, pushing his men as pieces about the place. But no, what Kubrick was doing was saying that these men are not playthings, and if you consider anything a game, you have immediately lost, because life is not a game. Life is a living thing, and the suddenness and beauty of that realisation comes at the end, when instead of calling the men back to the trenches, Colonel Dax allows them a few extra moments in the bar, where they are looking at a beautiful young German woman sing a song. The men jeer her at the start, but as she sings, they slowly fall quiet, and gradually they start to sing with her. The division between the warring nations is momentarily forgotten. It's a brilliant and sad scene, and proof positive that Kubrick had a strong heart. And just as an aside, the beautiful young actress who was singing the song, Christiana Harlan, soon became engaged to Stanley Kubrick, and they were made married until his death in 1999. <laughs> 